that running a veterinary business can sometimes feel like you're fighting your way through a jungle of financial insecurity, HR nightmares, and overall business confusion. Our goal is to give you the ideas and tools you need to not just survive in this jungle, but to thrive in the veterinary industry. By combining over 50 years of knowledge and experience with differing opinions and a little humor, we will help you get the information you need to make the best decisions for you and your veterinary business. Welcome to the Veterinary Survival Show with veterinary CPA and certified financial planner, Mark McGon, and certified veterinary practice manager and practice owner, Jenny George. Hi, this is Mark McGon. I'm the co-host of the Veterinary Survival Show, along with my absent co-host, Jenny George, who is under the weather right now. But we're talking with Sean Coyle from Simmons Northeast. I've known Sean for about 10 years through varied roles and responsibilities in lending and now in practice brokerage with Simmons Northeast. So I want to talk to Sean, get his state of the industry and what he sees because he's had a long experience in veterinary lending and now in brokerage, and we can use his unique perspective to educate ourselves on what we're talking about as recapitalization of your veterinary practice in whatever form. So thanks for being on the podcast, Sean. Thank you for having me, Mark. I'm uh, very excited to, to be doing this today. So we talk all the time about clients and potential clients and their goals and aspirations for ownership, but it ultimately ends in transition in whatever format to associates, to corporate consolidators. What are you seeing right now since you've just entered a new phase of your career? To kind of quickly give my background for for the last decade working where I met you, I was on just helping associates buy clinics, but part of that help was helping Owners also see their transition period and seeing it evolve really from an associate market dominating now to more of a, a corporate market and what's going to be going on in the next couple of years, five years, 10 years. I think everybody's speculation when it was 10 years ago, everyone was probably wrong. <laughs> what everybody uh, said five years ago, most people are probably wrong, but I guess I'll be right. So <laughs> that will be the big crystal ball. But obviously, when the owner retires, someone's got to own it, right? The clinic. So you're seeing this huge change in the last couple of years where it's it's become the dominant really practices above a certain threshold, almost them exclusively going to corporations and private equity because of what they're paying. But the associates, the interest in owning isn't changing. What I tell them is they have to change their expectations of where they are and what is going to occur for them in their career. There's still a huge path to ownership for them. It's just not going to be what it was 5, 10, 15, and 20 years ago. And definitely not like with the owner who bought the clinic that's now retiring. It's not going to be like their path. But I don't think private ownership is dead at all, which is the first thing I want to let people know. So there was a landmark study in the financial planning community 20 years ago. This gentleman called Mark Hurley said that in 10 years, there would be no independent financial planners whatsoever in the United States. They would be gobbled up by the Morgan Stanley's, Merrill Lynch's, UBS's. Mm -hmm. And fast forward 20 years, that hasn't happened. I mean, there's still a huge need for independent financial planners. Can we make that argument for veterinary hospitals that there's always going to be a need for an independent veterinary hospital? Not everybody wants to go to a corporate. That doesn't mean that corporate machine isn't going to still chug along and acquire hospitals at a rapid rate. Oh, I totally agree with that. Because the clients want it, let's be honest. I mean, the, the clients do like knowing their veterinarian. 
And I think that's really up to the associates in the industry. They're the really decision makers because I really believe the headwinds is the staffing issue in the industry, right? I mean, that's probably the the number one thing. And because of the staffing issue, that does give associates a lot of leverage to continue if they want to be owners. They have to be willing to build the brand. Or 10 or 15 years ago, much like the independent investment advisor, you're not able to go out and buy a two, two and a half, three million dollar, four million dollar clinic. Five doctors, you're not going to buy out the owner. What you'll have to see is the associate buy that and grow it. Buy that one doctor practice and turn it into a two or three doctor practice or just a high performing one doctor practice. There's a lot of great technology that's coming along that's giving doctors, and I don't want to say easier because their, their job's not easier, but giving them more time because of way tests can be results in, in technology that does free them up so they can see more patients that allows them to grow their business and have a successful one to two doctor practice that's doing north of a million to $2 million. So that's going to be there. I don't think that's going away because that is the associate's choice unless in the younger veterinarians decide that they don't want that. But that's something that will not be taken away from them. So I've spoken at a bunch of veterinary colleges to the Veterinary Business Management Association, and there's a hundred students that go to these talks. So they're all interested in in ownership. But is it just because of the competition out there with corporate entities snapping up the practices that they're not getting in it, or they're not seeing a better strategy on how to attain ownership? We had a couple individuals call us recently that became clients that their hospital was being acquired by a corporate. And the only way they would stay is if they were given ownership. They were each given 2.5% of the new entity. Yeah. You hear the VMA chapters are healthy, but life has a way of hitting you in the face when you get out, right? <laughs> it's like the old saying, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. It's like you come out of school and you're ready. You're like, yes, I'm going to own a practice in a couple of years. And then life comes about, right? You start a family things along the lines and your priorities and you just, and pay is finally catching up. For years, veterinarians were definitely underpaid for their services. They came out with high student loans. They have these high student loans and they're not getting paid what they're worth. So life was challenging. I mean, it was challenging to buy a home. It was challenging to buy a car, challenging to start a family, to save money for retirement, all this other stuff. So there was this assumption that they couldn't afford to be owners because it was a tough practice to buy their house, right? And it took a month of paperwork and they didn't know if they were going to get it. And now they're thinking, well, it was hard enough for me to get a loan for 300000 or 400000 and I owe $200,000 in student loan debt. Who's going to give me money to start a clinic or buy a clinic? And that's what I dealt with for years. There's plenty of people that are going to give you the money. It's just, there's not this connection. People don't understand it. And I know we've had this discussion and not to get into other industries, but where you look at the dentist, where they're told when you talk about similar demographics, obviously they make more money coming out, but same student loan debt, same kind of thing. And they're told to start up. Hey, if your owner's selling out, leave and go start up a practice. Well, that's not necessarily in the veterinary world because they're worried. As I said, the, getting the home, the car was tough. And now we as people spend a lot of time focusing on what could go wrong as opposed to what could go right. And so they get bottled down in that. And you end up saying, all right, and then complacency, and then you don't start it up. And then it's 15 years, you're out of school, and you're like, what happened? And my clinic's getting sold, and I have no choice but to go along with it. We call dentists entrepreneurial dentists because they all come out of school and they have a three-year plan where they're going to own a practice. We normally only see a few veterinarians a couple years out of school say, oh, I'm going to buy a practice. I, I've entered my name with a bunch of brokers. I'm looking for one right now. I'm like, you're out of school like a year. What do you know? And they're like, I, I just know I want to do this. Most dentists that we talk to, they already have that plan. 
where we see a lot of veterinarians waiting. I mean, we have a veterinarian that's 50 years old that just bought their first practice. What were they waiting for? <laughs> Part of it, I think, is in the clinics I have that stay private, they tend to be on the smaller side, these 800000 or $700,000 in revenue. And it's an owner that's kind of gone into, kind of retired 10 years ago and held on to it, right? And the clinic's kind of run down, needs some new paint and and just it needs a little TLC. And people are just like, oh, I don't want it. Look at it. It's not doing the revenue and it, it needs a paint. And you're like, okay, I'm looking at this clinic that's doing $800,000 in revenue that you can buy for $600,000 that overnight you can turn into a $1.2 million clinic. And when you grow your clinic in revenue, yeah, your variable costs grow, but your fixed don't. So I often explain to them, if a clinic's at a 15 or 20% margin, that $100,000 or $200,000 growth can often be at a 40% margin in profitability. So it's like you're looking at this clinic and it needs, let's say, $40,000 in love. We need to get in there, do some painting, maybe some new cabins, spruce up the place. I mean, I've been in places where they still have like shag carpeting. Like, let's tear that up. 40 grand. And it's like, okay. And as you know, you're going to write that off and over time and things like that. And it's like, you're not going to buy this clinic that suddenly can be worth $1.2 million in a year. And your cash flow on it is going to be an extra 80 to 100 grand on top of what you're making because you don't want to hire somebody for $40,000. And it's the old, you can't see the forest through the trees thing. But man, when I see associates buy those practices and I run into them a year or two later. I mean, they're just the happiest people in the world because they get to dictate their life, their hours, and they're finally getting paid what they're worth. And now they've rehabbed the clinic. This is the funny thing. When you talk about numbers, $100,000 seems like a lot of money when you're an associate. But when you're talking to an owner who's going to rehab their building and you're putting that over 10 years and the write-off, you're talking about costing about eight grand a year to put a nice shine on a clinic that needs some love. As I say, it's going to cost you eight grand a year to do that. And you can up your cash flow by $100,000 or $150,000 on top of what you're making. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. And it's just getting people to see it. But unfortunately, people often want the clinic that's already doing one and a half and $2 million. That looks beautiful because they feel there's less risk in it. I always think there's more risk in a high performing practice. I mean, a low performing practice, because the price is going to be set off of that. All you have to do is continue to run it the way it is and you're fine. A high-performing practice, you have to keep up with the person who did that before. There's not a margin to grow. And I think that's really where that message isn't out in the industry about these clinics. I mean, these things should be going like hotcakes to associates when something six, $700,000 comes on the market. But there's a lot of hemming and hawing, and they're like, oh, do you have anything bigger? And you're like, you're not going to make any more money on a one. It's like, if you buy a $2 million clinic, all the profit's going to be built into the pricing of the clinic. Back to my point of buying an $800,000 clinic, it's going to do $1.2 million next year. And you've picked up $400,000 in revenue at a 40% clip. So you've just increased your bottom line by $160,000. And that's all profit to you. That's what the clients want. They want that. And so I love selling those practices to people because I know the impact it's going to have on their lives and their family's life. As I said, you run into these people at a trade show a year or two later, three years later, four years later. And things are just going awesome for them. So we normally tell people those are cigar butt practices. I had an investment club when I used to live out in Western Mass with a group of individuals. And we had one gentleman that would always come up with these cigar butt investments. You'd invest a dollar and it would make $100. That's essentially what we term these smaller practices. We had a client 
that two years ago bought a practice for 500000 and bought the building for 500000 And there was no love shown to this practice by the former owner. Fast forward two years, his profit, after paying himself a reasonable salary at 21.5% of his own production for compensation, his bottom line profit is 450000 So he didn't have a financial planning problem before because he had no money. He was an associate. I told him he's going to need a financial planner. He said, let me know your recommendation when I start making money, which I don't think is going to be for a while. Well, he has a problem now. He has a child. He has student loans, new house. But guess what? He has the money to pay all of that. And that was off of one of those cigar butt practices. So if you can get one of those in whatever state you can, I mean, in our area, outside Boston, there aren't that many of those. But if you go further reaches of 40, 50 miles outside the Boston area, whether you're in New Hampshire, Maine, Connecticut, Rhode Island, if you can get those, snap them up. Oh, yeah. It's almost like their tax bill is what they were making in salary before on those ones. As you know, when these people come back and they look at their tax bill, the funny things they have to say, it's like, oh, my God, I've jumped three brackets. <laughs> I mean, there's just not one low bracket. But yeah, those are just, and there's plenty of them out there and they're not going away to the point of where we're talking about the, that study about the financial planners. Like that's not going away. That's always going to be there. And you talk about the student loan crisis. I spoke on a panel at CBC once on student loans and the whole audience was in an uproar. How do we pay our student loans back? And I said, become an owner. It's the only way. I used to have a joke that I came up with when I would do my seminars. The current plan when a veterinarian graduates from college, the first one is you're just going to run out the clock, right? You're going to do the income-based repayments. You're going to do it for 20 years and then what's left over. That's the number one plan. And then you have to pay the taxes on it. The number two way veterinarians can pay off their student loans or the plan when they usually graduate from college is to marry somebody rich, right? But unfortunately, I always say veterinarians marry for love and not money. So usually that doesn't go well. And then the third, you know, they get hit by a bus and then that's going to take care of the when people graduate, that's their options, or that's what they thought their options. Run out the clock, I can marry rich, or I get hit by a bus. And that's the only way I'm going to pay off my student loans. Become an owner and pay them off in five years. That's the best thing. And put away money for retirement. Start your own 401k. There's, as you know, there's so many benefits and tax advantages, hopefully, that will be sticking around for people who do that. I always tell associates, if you don't believe it can happen, and this can be your life, look at the owner that's leaving. And look at the money they've made. Look at their family. Look at where they sent their kids to college. Did they go on vacation? Another concern about being an owner is that work-life balance. Are there times when I'm going to have to work more? Yes. But imagine this. You now control your schedule. You get to decide, do you want the school vacations off? You decide your schedule. You can decide when you want to bring in someone to pay relief work for you. There's so much more options for you as an owner than as an associate. And it's purely not monetary. I mean, you mentioned vacations and time off, but just the rewarding benefits of owning your own practice. You can design your own medical protocols. You can purchase the equipment you want. You don't have to use somebody else's decision. You can shop a trade show or online and buy something that you desire. You can hire the right staff. You can hire more staff to help you. You can delegate. You can do all those things that you thought you couldn't do or that you always wanted to do. I always warn about hiring too much staff. All clinics will be successful from a revenue point of view. All costs nowadays are pretty easy to keep under control. The only cost that ever gets out of control is your staffing costs. 
And you see the high-performing practices are the really the efficient ones that are staffed properly, not overwork, but staffed properly. When I used to advise people on when they were redoing their clinic and they're doing expansions is the right space that people have a tendency when they build out their clinics, if they make it too big, what do they want to do? They want to staff it. That's why I was like, keep it small, keep it efficient. And that will naturally keep you from overstaffing it. You don't need six exam rooms in 8,000 square feet because you're just going to end up hiring people because you have all this empty room. Keep it simple, keep it small, and then you can't overstaff because you can't hire people because there's nowhere to put them. So what do you see in the industry now that you're on the other side, you're not in lending, you're in brokerage? What's the thing that surprised you the most? I mean, I always knew they were paying a lot for practices. I think right now we're really in the heyday of what these corporations are willing to pay for practices. It was eye-opening to see the numbers. And it's also still eye-opening to see how many people do it on their own and negotiate with them. Because a lot of people, they're like, I can't believe I'm getting offered this money. And it's like, well, there's more money out there for you. Make sure you've talked to somebody about it. But just the speed that these people can move and what they're willing to pay is just incredible, which is good for sellers. This is their life's work. It's 100% okay to cash in on it. There's nothing wrong with selling out at a top dollar number. If someone's willing to pay you for your life's work, that's going to affect not only you, your kids, your grandkids. It's totally acceptable to, to reach that money and, and to ask for more. Veterinarians, that's the one thing. Having worked with them for a decade, I feel like sometimes I'm their biggest advocate through the whole line. It's okay to make a profit because people are paying for it. People are paying for the services. It's okay to retain the money. You don't have to give it to somebody else. You don't have to cut them a discount. The other thing is I probably spend a lot of time right now talking to the owners. There's just real concern about their staff and their employment. That's the thing I hear is like, look, when I sell my practice, I want to make sure my staff still has a job. And everyone's concerned and that sometimes why they hold off or maybe not negotiate the best deal for themselves because they're worried about their staff employment. So the first question I ask them is, hey, how hard is it to hire someone right now? And they're like, nearly impossible. Okay. Do you think your staff gets solicited for a job all the time? Yeah. Should you really be worried about their employment right now? Uh, no. And I don't mean that to be mean, but I'm like, there's such a demand for not only doctors, but vet techs, assistants, anybody who works in a veterinary office, that you don't have to be concerned that your staff is going to be out of employment because I can guarantee you, no matter who's buying your clinic, the first question they ask is, are we going to lose anybody? Because they can't afford to lose anybody. There's such a demand for every type of staff in a clinic that even if somehow there was a job being lost at a clinic, I can guarantee you there's a clinic within five miles that need help. And we'll probably pay that person more money. So to the owners, I'm glad they're concerned about their staff. That's the right thing. But they have to realize the current market conditions really dictate for the most part. They don't have to worry about their staff. The market is going to take care of their staff. And I don't see that letting up anytime soon. So should they be paying their staff more now? I mean, that gets into each individual clinic. But as you know, I mean, you have to be constantly checking your pay of your staff. Because if someone's coming to you and they've accepted another job, it's going to be hard to get them to stay. And the reason why they're probably leaving is because someone made them too good of an offer. So, I mean, I think you need to do a yearly check of what you're paying your staff and what the market is. Oh, they got a 2% raise. Well, what happens if they've been with you for 15 years or 10 years and they got in when the market wasn't tight, the labor market? And so you've been giving them a 2% or 3% raise. And so now their pay has gone up 40%. But let's just say, so I can do the math easy, $10. Now you got them at 14 But the going market rate for that employee is 18 bucks, 20 bucks an hour. They're underpaid. 
And if they leave you for an $18 job, it's going to cost you $20 to go replace them an hour. Why don't you move them from $14 to $17 or even $18 to do the right thing? Move them to $18 so you don't lose them. When you see clinics running to staffing, that's usually the reason why is because the owner hasn't taken the time to readjust their salary to the market. They've only given them cost of living inflation and not to the market. So we have a new initiative, Jenny and I. It's called the Veterinary Survival Pay Initiative. (laughs) Sounds kind of hokey until you understand the premise. We're trying to get people to be at least up to the MIT living wage calculator for their county. So we've had a couple hospitals already bump up their hourly rate. Even after just giving raises, they bumped everybody up another $250 an hour for all their staff just so they could meet that benchmark because people were existing, but they really weren't thriving. I mean, they didn't have extra money. We had a practice where there were people on heating assistance. Now they're getting a 250 bump in pay. Are they going to leave? Probably not. It's kind of a retention tool and it's an appreciation tool as well. Oh, I think it's both. It sounds great from a, a societal point. But from a business point of view, it makes more sense. You have to be proactive. I think that's anything in life. The more proactive you are, when you're reactive, you're always going to be defensive, right? I see that. You deal with these clinics, you're going in, they're selling, and they're losing people because they weren't proactive in that. Checking in with them constantly, making sure things are going okay, and making sure that they're paying them the right amount of money. And the same thing with the staffing. If you're not, someone's going to come in and offer them that. The term living wage, that's great, but it should just be from a business point of view because you don't want to lose them. That's great that you're doing it for the living wage and give them a better life. But to protect your own self, you should be giving them that raise of 250 an hour. Because if you lose those people, now you can't see any more clients. And let's talk about what's 250 an hour, right? I mean, if that's eight hours a day, 20 bucks a day, five days a week, that's a hundred bucks. If you lose an employee, how many clients are you going to lose? Or not lose, that you can't see now. So you're not losing them somewhere, but now you're losing that revenue. So what are you going to lose? $5,000 in revenue because you didn't want to spend 100 bucks. And it's not $100 after taxes. It costs you 75 Right. But you lose 100% of that revenue. That's the thing. And my background is I have an economics degree. And in the economic world, they talk about the opportunity costs, the unforeseen costs in running things and the decisions you make. Most industries don't pay attention to the opportunity cost. They only look at the real cost. That's why one day they wake up and they're like, why am I not doing as well as my peers when I'm in an industry where I should be making a ton of money? It's like, well, because you didn't look at your opportunity costs and you're probably your number one is how you treat your staff. Definitely. We have hospitals right now that can't get doctors and can't get technicians and they don't know what they're going to do. I mean, you get one associate that goes out on maternity leave and don't have plan B what are you going to do? Do you lose three to six months of revenue? Or do you have to work double shifts for three to six months? Yeah. And you wish you had spent the money before and banked that goodwill. And that's, as I say, back to the point of, I think the number one headwinds in this industry is the staffing. People love pets. Pet ownership keeps, which is amazing when you think about the percentage of people that already own pets. And so now it's no longer owning a pet. It's owning multiple pets. That's increasing. And so the demand for the services is increasing. This can end up in a whole nother argument, but there's not a good feeder pipeline for the staffing. We know vet techs, right? Vet techs are like gold right now, but where are we training them? I mean, there are programs, but I don't think they're pumping out enough. And I think Maunita was taken over by UMass, and I'm not sure if they've continued the program as well as before. And we talk about 
and this can really delve into a whole nother conversation, it's right about college and people going away. The programs that could be offered and the demand for fat tax and the labor market is there. It's just the connections not being made. I mean, we're coming out of a pandemic where a lot of people in the service industry have lost their jobs, right? You would think this would be a great transition period. And it's just not. Hey, come become a vet tech. You get to work with animals. Have a nice living. We can't tell what 10 or 15 years down the road. But at the very least, based on current ownership level, you're going to have at least a 10-year run in this industry. And where that just, it doesn't exist. We don't think of it. And it's talking with somebody. It's almost like a trade where we look at all the trades. There's such a need for people in trade, plumbing, electricians. I think of that as like a trade. It would be great to grab people right out of high school and teach them and put them into programs and get them to become certified vet techs because there's a demand for it. They're not going to accumulate debt and they'll have a good job and a good life. A very, I think, definitely for the people going rewarding. I just don't think, I don't think there's a good enough like marketing to grab those people. I don't think there is. Look at human medicine. When I was in human medicine, there were tons of PAs that were entering the industry because a lot of the for-profit hospitals saw the need that we needed a physician extender. If we have a physician that's overseeing medical care and you can have somebody that's great at physical skills and diagnosis, and that would be a PA, then you've kind of leveraged the doctors that you have on staff with somebody that can do all the care. So I don't know why the veterinary industry hasn't gone towards that enhanced technician that's not a doctor, but has far superior skills to a technician. Yeah, that would be awesome. You look at like nurse anesthetists. I mean, when I worked in surgery, there was one anesthesiologist for six operating rooms and there was a nurse anesthetist that was doing the anesthesia for all the surgeries. And being very well paid. And being very well paid. Right. Probably making more than some of the doctors in the hospital. Someone's got to take the time and create the solution for that. And I guess that's the path where community colleges... I'd love for them to see that. And I remember seeing this thing about a trade school in Boston that was putting out plumbers and saying that they charge tuition, but there's not a student there paying tuition because there's so many jobs that if they get someone who inquires, they have employers who are willing to pay the tuition. I think you could see that in the veterinary industry at some point. As a clinic, you want to retain somebody, pay for them to go back to school. If you have an assistant in there, pay for them to go get their license, put them back in there, get the training, let them grow into that. I mean, could corporate medicine do that? They could. They should. Right now, you have these consolidators, but they're buying up hospitals. And then we obviously we were joking about this before the podcast. Then they recapitalize, aka sell. So a lot of them aren't in it for the long haul. They don't have a long term view. Yeah. But if I was one of the long haul ones, one of these major groups that had 400 plus hospitals, and, and a lot of them are rolling out these benefits now. But that'd be the front of my stuff is like, look, our number one thing for staffing is if you work in a hospital and you're not a licensed vet tech, we're going to pay for you to become one. Everybody in here, 100% is going to get paid. And let's put an incentive in there. This is what your pay is going to be when you get licensed. And I think that's coming because the market, I mean, that gets back to our free market. That's going to get dictated. At some point, someone's going to realize like, look, the only way we're going to staff these places, if we're a big one, we own a thousand hospitals. If we're not proactive in doing this, then we're in trouble. You look at like Disney has the Disney Institute. Initially, that was to train Disney employees. Now it's open to outsiders. I mean, they created a great model for education. Yeah, I can tell you when I first started in banking 25 years ago, they had a ton of great programs that were put on night to further your career. They had what they called the ABA, the American Banking Institute. There was constantly seminars. The bank used to pay 100% of tuition. 
that was under the IRS guidelines. I mean, I don't know what it is nowadays, but back then it was significant. In the early 90s, to get $6,000 tax-free a year to go to college was a lot of money. It's essentially the same now, $5,250, which doesn't go that far. It's like one class. It's so sad that right. these are all discussions for another day, but maybe they need to be lobbying the government too to say, hey, look, we want to pay these people to go to school and we want to pay their tuition. That's so sad. 25 years later, and we're, we're only allowing the companies to pay the X amount of dollars. But yes, I think there needs to be some type of some type of program set up for that. We're trying to summarize probably corporate medicine versus traditional ownership models. I mean, I've always thought that maybe associates should band together and become their own corporate entity and be able to buy bigger practices. Is that realistic? Yes. I mean, but then you end up with the same thing. Because if you're going to go down that path, you have to have access to capital. And so then access to capital is going to dictate terms. And then next thing you know, you've created the same monster that you're hoping to avoid. And this is what keeps the corporations, we'll keep it honest and keep the industry going great, is the buying of these $800,000, million clinics. As long as there's a demand for those and people keep buying those, associates keep starting up practices, we'll have this nice... You're going to have large hospitals and there's going to be a place for the corporates and they're still going to continue to be there, but they can definitely coexist in this industry. Not everyone's going to want ownership, like the financial planners, right? The biggest ones are still your your big investment banks, but there are plenty of individuals. And I think that's what we're going to settle into a nice, this is what goes to corporate and this is what goes to private. Obviously, we're in this frenzy because it seems like the corporates are buying up everything right now, which they are. But as I said, there's plenty of there's plenty of practices out there for people to buy and to, and to stay private. I mean, selfishly, I want everybody to stay private because then they may have the opportunity to become a client. But once they go to corporate, they're gone forever. And based off what the corporations are paying for these clinics, the owners are totally justified and they're doing nothing wrong by selling to them. They have to take the money, especially when it gets into a generational wealth. If you can get three times what someone's willing to pay for it, if someone can pay $2 million, someone's offering you six, how could you ask someone to leave $4 million on the table? If someone was offering you two and a corporation was offering you 2.2, there's ways you could figure that out and leaving that on the table is fine. But this huge gap, you can't ask somebody to leave that type of money on it. I mean, if somebody was offering you $6,000 for Google per share when it was only really worth $2,300 a share, would you turn it down 99% of the time? No. You take that in a heartbeat. Yep. And that's why when I talk to owners now and say, yeah, it's okay to talk to them. And if they offer you the money, take it. It's okay to share the wealth with your staff. They're paying these multiples because the staff and the goodwill. So it's okay if you need to, to share that money with them to get the deal done. So we had a unique experience with that. We had a corporation out on the West Coast buy a client out there and they threw into the deal structure that they knew that the client was going to be giving bonuses for just being great long-term employees. And as part of the sale, they wanted to reward their employees. The corporate said, we are going to require you to give us the money. We'll write out the check and put it in our envelope and we'll give it to them to thank them for coming on board. And they were not allowed to say that the bonus was from them. They had to say it was from the corporate entity. Is that what ended up happening? I put a squash on that. (laughs) 
Yeah, I would too. You didn't give it to me no matter what, but now I'm deciding to give it to them and you want to take credit? Yeah. And these people were so thankful for what they had received, but they wanted to share it with the people that had helped them create it, which I think was very nice. And I do too. And that's why I'm like, you know, when you're talking to these corporations, that's why you want to extract the last, rightfully so, the right price and get what they're willing to pay because then your staff can share in it. Sometimes people make decisions for their staff without talking to them. I'm looking at this corporation versus this corporation, and this one wants more money. Well, imagine if you went to your staff and said, look, I can sell it to A or B. If I sell it to B, I'm going to give you guys money. What do you think the vote's going to go on percentage of that? B. (laughs) You might like the A corporate culture better. You might like this about A. B. (laughs) It's always going to be B. They know that there's a demand for their services, and they know that the market's going to take care of them for the most part. So give them B. And that's why I tell the owners, if you really feel that bad, let's get the money from them and share it with the staff. That company that wanted to give the envelope, there was definitely a way for them to spin it without giving them the envelope. Hey, look what we did for your owner. We gave them so much money, they were able to give you money. If we didn't do that, you wouldn't have gotten it. I mean, that's how I would approach it. And you probably would have had the owner on board with that. It would have been nicer as opposed to be like, no, you can't do that. We're now going to do that because you asked too much. So we were referred a client recently that wants to sell the corporate in five years. However, their books were a shambles. Their whole practice, I think, needs a refresh. So they have a five-year window. We tell people if they're going to sell, they should be thinking about that years in advance, just not five or less years. What do you see that people need to do to get ready for a sale? Well, the first thing is making sure you have the right staff. That's the most important thing that's going to affect your valley. Is if you are overstaffed, is making sure you correct that because that's your biggest cost in there. So if you lose somebody and you're overstaffed, you don't want to replace them. And then it gets into cleaning up your books. If you're talking about aesthetic point of views, cleaning up your practice, repainting it, that's not going to affect. It's all about the cash flow. And I had this conversation all the time. If someone ever tried to beat up one of my clients because the walls needed painting, I would die laughing. Be like, sorry, I got 19 other people behind you who don't care. A funny story my parents always used to tell when we were like babies and driving up the coast in California and it was during the rain season and they're having like mudslides and they're trying to get up to my uncles and they're not going to make it. And they're going up Pacific Coast Highway and they find this motel that probably charges by the hour. Parents get up there and, and the guy's like, all right, one room left. And my mom's like, can we see it first? And there's like five people behind my dad's like, no, we'll take it. If someone comes in and is not going to buy a practice because it needs paint and stuff like that, they're the wrong buyer and it's not going to affect the sale price. You don't want holes in the wall, but to that point, I wouldn't worry about that. The things I would get ready most for is really the staffing. Make sure you have the proper staff, they're happy, and they're locked in, they're engaged to your clinic, because that's going to affect the value the most is your staff. Hopefully, all the other stuff is easily taken care of. If you're still overpaying for your supplies, I can't believe you missed that train, but that can get corrected pretty easily looking at the view of the clinic. Don't worry about that upgrade. That's all cheap money. That's really not going to affect your value of your clinic. It's the cash flow. It's always the cash flow. I mean, that's where we tell people the bottom line and revenue can cure everything. (laughs) It can. Yeah. Do I need to redo the floors? Nope. Paint the walls? Nope. I've sold practices where there's popcorn ceilings and shade carpeting. Oh, we can't use this room because there's a hole in the wall. So the door's locked. It's cheap to fix that because they think of the initial cost. They don't realize that cost is put over 10 or 15 years and you get the tax write off. So 100000 is really only a $7,000 a year cost to a clinic. 
So don't spend the money. Obviously, if the roof is leaking, you do need to fix that. (laughs) If the heating system is no longer working, let's fix that. As long as everything's operating fine, the new owners will put a a, a new... um, And there are a lot of buying groups now just for the real estate. And in their calculations, they factor in the maintenance. And they're factoring in no matter what. So if you pretty up that clinic, all you're doing is giving them profit because they're not going to take that maintenance calculation out. You've made more money for the corporate real estate buyer. Right. Because let's just say in every deal, they mark, we're going to have to put $100,000 into this. This is how we do our calculations. This is not the number. I'm just saying, hypothetically, let's say it is $100,000 in love. We're going to put it into it over 10 years. If you go and do that for them, all you did was give them $100,000. They'll put the new paint on. They'll take care of the floors. They'll do all that stuff for you. That's probably the biggest change I've seen recently is how many buyers there are now for real estate. I get emails all the time from new groups that are we're buying veterinary real estate. And I only knew of one or two before. Now there's people out there with seven or 10 properties, which their goal is 50 or 100. Yep. And I always say, when it's time to retire, get out of everything. I didn't used to say that. And five years ago, I said, can you cash out of everything and still have less stress related to that veterinary hospital? If you're still tied to it, you're still going to have some level of stress. Yes. Let's talk about like retiring. Being a landlord at 70 is okay. Being a landlord at 85 stinks. (laughs) And the longer you hold on to that property, the harder it is. You're going to get your best deal when you sell the clinic. Selling the real estate at the same time is probably when you get your best deal. And I know the argument's always been like, oh, but it's an income producing asset. Yeah, but you can switch that money to another income producing asset without the headaches. With greater liquidity as well. Correct. Yes. As I always say, that's a big immovable object in your retirement planning. So get it out there, get in something liquid that's still doing income producing. Just call it a day. You're not a real estate mogul. And 1031 exchanges are under fire by the Biden administration. So if you're thinking about doing tax-free real estate exchanges, that may not be allowed in a year or two. So does that make the sale possibility even more real now? Well, one thing we do know, taxes aren't going down. We can officially say that taxes aren't going down. So this is the time to get out completely. Cash is king. Get in something liquid. Because you know what? In three years, if the landscape changes for real estate, you can always invest in other type of real estate. That option's not going away. But I think with impending tax law changes is, and just the problems of managing it. And if you do sell out it and you do have an issue with the tenant, they want you to fix something, then you say it's your responsibility and they say it's yours. All you're going to do is end up paying legal fees. At the end of the day, you're going to lose a ton of money. And they know that. They know that they can beat you up and just make it break. And it's like, well, look, we can make you spend 50 grand in legal fees or you can just spend $35,000 to fix it. And so your lawyers can probably, yeah, they're, they're right. And you're going to break. And so just get out of it. Get out of it and invest in something else. You'll be happier. You will. And no worries. You don't want to be on a beach in Florida and have to come back to Massachusetts or Montana or wherever you are to deal with a rental real estate problem. Correct. Because when is it going to happen? Especially around here, it's going to happen in February. Then you're going to get a little thawing. And then next thing you know, there's going to be a leak in the roof or there's going to be something with the sewer line or something that you're responsible for. I always say when you do those leases, oh, I got a triple net, which triple net just means they're paying insurance and taxes. It has nothing to do with liability on the building. But yes, you're right. You're not responsible for the little things. You're only responsible for the big check. You're never going to have to write a check for a thousand bucks. The only checks you're ever going to write for are $35,000 when it goes wrong. 
sinkhole in the parking lot. Yes. Yep. All right. Well, Sean, I think we've had some good information shared today and we could talk probably for a few more hours on this. So maybe we'll schedule something in the future on more specific aspects of veterinary practice transitions, whatever facet. But I hope everybody's gotten some good information today and a starting point and maybe a way to start thinking about who to sell to or how to protect the value that you have today and increase it. Thanks for having me on, Mark. Well, really appreciate it, Sean. Thank you very much. Bye.